Um, so we are, I, can't, I don't even know how many weeks we're into this now, but we are, I think, sort of six or seven weeks now into a series that we're doing on Exodus. And it's an 18-week series. It really is going to be an exodus for all of us. By the end of it, we're going to be like the uh, Israelites wandering in the wilderness, I think. It's a long series. And um, so today we are, we've got, a, it's an important moment in the exodus story. And we are going to be looking at the 10th plague and the Passover today. So it's quite a significant moment in, the, in the, the narrative so far. So last week, Catherine spoke eloquently on the first nine plagues, and today I've been tasked with this 10th plague. Um, and so I'm going to, uh, because I've got so much to get through today, I'm just going to jump straight into it. So there's no more niceties now. We're going to read the text together. And we're going to read all of Exodus 11, um, except for just the last, uh, the last couple of verses. So we're just going to go to actually to verse to verse 8. Okay, so let's just read this together. So one to cha- verse, chapter 11, verses 1 to 8 as we start. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that the men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. Then we get this brackets comment. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So I'll leave this one with you to decide why they're favourably disposed among the people. I think there might be two reasons for it. First of all, because they'd, they just walked in faithfulness. This subjected, subdued people group who were effectively the slaves in Egypt had just walked in faithfulness. Maybe they just walked in that faithfulness. Or maybe the Egyptians were so fed up of these plagues that had come upon them, there was a favourable disposition just to get rid of these people. We'll give you anything you want. You just need to go. Maybe that was the attitude. But also we have a second comment here about Moses himself. Remember, Moses was brought up in the royal courts. Yes, he had fled to Midian. He's come back again. But he's highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. I'd kind of just maybe want to point to you in that... uh, faithfulness gains favour, is what I might say through that comment. If you're faithful to God, God will bless your life with favour. So I just want to just just throw that one out at you. Verse 4. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or will ever be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark or at person, at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. So I didn't actually deliver this maybe as quite angrily as Moses did. But I want you to imagine for a moment that this monologue, which is what it is, is delivered with anger attached to it. There is a little bit of rage attached to what Moses is saying here. Just bear that in mind a little bit as well. That this is what the point has come to in this whole kind of story. We've had these nine plagues and we've got to this point here. But as Catherine was speaking last week and as I've read that to you, I I don't know whether you like me, I'm just going to be completely honest and authentic here. I think, gosh, this is horrific. <laughs> like last week, we were listening to the, the plagues. They're horrific. Aren't they horrific? Like, imagine for a moment, I mean, like, the modern-day alternative to the blood in the water in the Nile would be, imagine you got up to go for a shower, you turn the tap on, and blood dribbles out on your head. 
Or you go to make a coffee in the morning, you fill the kettle up, and as you fill the kettle up, it's blood that's pouring into your kettle. And then you go outside and you think, oh gosh, I better go outside. And you find that there are frogs all over your garden. You wake up the next day, you're covered in gnats. You go out to feed your sheep and your cattle because you own, obviously, sheep in this day and age. And you find that they're, that they're dying. You find that there are boils attached to you when you wake up. These are horrible things, aren't they? They're horrible. And then we get this one. The plague of the firstborn. This is horrific. This is, like, awful. Imagine it for a moment. Imagine you woke up in the morning and your firstborn son, if you've got a son, died. Or if you are a firstborn son, I've got an older sister, but I'm the firstborn son. In this story, if I was an Egyptian, I would be no more. That's, that's like the seriousness of this. This is something that we, we can't take lightly. And to be honest with you, in our kind of modern language, we would use the word genocide, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we? Yeah? You'd look at this and you'd go, okay. And then I question it. How could God do this? Why would God do this? Because I thought God's a good God. Why would God bring this on anybody? Why would he do it? So why would God do this? Well, let me give you a few reasons why, why this happens. First of all, there's this biblical uh, thing that we see throughout the Bible, this picture that God has the right to the firstborn, the right to the first fruits. So you'll see it throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that God claims a right to the first things. And so I even, I mean, in my life today, this is something that I, I want to honour before God. So with my finances, when, so I get paid in the middle of the month, Claire gets paid at the end of the month. So when Claire gets paid, so we see that as, as our kind of end, first start of the next month payday, we give at that point in the month because we want to honour God with the first fruits of what we, of what we have. Because we believe that what we have belongs to God. And so we give him out of our first to God. So God requires something, deserves something. And if we remember back to Exodus 1, what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh takes the sons of Israel. He, he tells the, the Egyptians to throw the sons of Israel into the Nile. He usurps God's right to the firstborn. And in, in, in usurping God's right to the firstborn, what he's doing is he is setting himself up as a god. He is saying, I'm a god. I'm a god. I, I'm, I'm, I can be on par with, with Yahweh, the, the, the god of the, the Israelites. I'm, I'm a god. And he's setting himself up as a god. And the, the thing is, is what we find in the text is that all of, all of Egypt are complicit in this act. They are involved in it. They too are setting themselves up as gods. They are setting themselves up against the way of the true God and they are going after what we would define as rebellion. They are rebelling against God's created order. And when we rebel against God's created order, we find in Scripture our rebellion deserves justice. There's justice that needs to be meted out by people who are lawless. Now, just a couple of days ago, um, you, you remember what happened at the Champions League final. There's the, you know, we've seen, started to see what's happened in the news. I don't know if you're a Liverpool fan or not. I'm definitely not. But um, after the final, uh, they, they, the, the fans came outside and they were beaten up by, by, by gangs of local people. You've seen this on the news. And now there's the call, isn't there, for justice. People want to see justice done to these people who have been hurt because they have been the victims of lawless behaviour. Of rebellion, And all of us would probably agree these people who did these things need to be brought to justice. We'd see that event and we'd say, they need justice. Justice needs to be done. Because we, we want to see justice done. What we don't like is 
when it's about us, when we're the ones that have rebelled. We don't want justice then, do we? We don't want judgment then. But in this instance, there's this, God's got the right to the firstborn, and there needs to be justice meted out. There needs to be judgment meted out because the Egyptians have walked in rebellion against God. And rebellion against God, sin against God, the, the, the judgment, the penalty for that, we see this all the way through the Bible, I say it time and time again, is death. That's the judgment against sin, against rebellion against God, it's death. And there's another thing, though, that is going on here as well. So we've got judgment, and we've also got redemption. So what is redemption? You might have heard the word. It's, a bit, it's become a bit of a Christian word. We don't really use it in our culture that much anymore. What does redemption mean? God, in, in doing this act, in this tenth plague, is starting an act of redemption. He is going to redeem his people, Israel, from Egypt. So what is redemption? Well, let's take ourselves back to the ancient Near East for a moment and pretend that you and I, we're all part of the same tribe, okay, and we live in a village. And then one day, another tribe from another village come and attack us. And in their attack, what they do is they take a few of us off. Um, we're alive still, and we get taken off as hostages, and we go back to this other village, and we become their slaves. They find out after a couple of weeks that there's somebody really significant or a few people that are really significant in our number. Maybe it's the chiefs of the village or, you know, the teachers or so on and so forth are, are, are part of these slaves that they captured. And so they send word back to us, and they say... If you want to redeem them, you need to pay the price. And so we then all get together our cash out of our pockets. We raise a collection and we take it to that village and we pay a redemption price in order to redeem the people that have been captured. That's what redemption was. So redemption is freeing somebody, but it's at a cost. Does that make sense? It's at a cost. So in this instance, what happens is, and it's an unusual redemption, because in, in the analogy that I've just given you, what, what happens is we pay the price. So if we were to take this story logically and look at redemption in this story, it, surely it should be God that pays the price. But what we find is actually it's the, 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 the captors, Egypt, pay the price. They're the ones that pay the price. God redeems his people at no cost to himself. The cost falls on the Egyptians as their firstborn sons and cattle die. So with that in mind, how does God then save his people? How does God redeem his people and save them from that situation? Well, in order to know that, we need to read on. So we're going to read Exodus chapter 12 together, and we're just going to read to verse 16, and then I've got a couple of extra verses at the end. My uh, stand is full of paper today because I've got so many different readings we need to do. Okay, right. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So because of what we're about to read, the whole calendar for Egypt, for, sorry, for Israel changes. There's a change that takes place. January is no longer January anymore. The start of the year shifts. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people that are there. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats... Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. 
Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over a fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass throughout Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Notice how significant that phrase is into understanding why God's doing what he's doing. He is bringing judgment on the gods of Egypt. And then the next phrase, which is a a sentence in and of itself, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I am who I am. There's nobody else besides me. This is why he's bringing judgment. Does that make sense? Because they've tried to be like God themselves, and he's saying, only I'm God. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on your houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate for generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through to the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Don't work at all on any of those days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Let's just cycle ahead now to verse 29 quickly. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a household without somebody dead. And if we just cycle through, just to finish off this, this story, just to verse 50. All the Israelites did just, did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. So what happens in this story? How does God bring about redemption? Well, we have this this judgment that gets brought, as I've spoken about already, on the firstborn sons and cattle of Egypt. But God chooses to save the Israelites from this judgment. And he does it through a substitute. There is a lamb in each household to be killed. And this lamb's death is a substitute for the death of the people inside, for the firstborn son inside that house. The lamb becomes the firstborn son. Does that make sense? Its blood is to be painted on the doorway of the house, on the lintel, the bit that goes across the door, and the sides to the door. Its blood is to be painted on it. And inside, that family needs to stay, and they're to make themselves some bread without yeast, and they're to cook the lamb over an open flame, and they're to eat all of it. And if they can't eat any more, they're to burn it up completely. And they're to eat it ready to leave. And so they do these things, as we read right at the end. They do what God's told them to do. And in the, as the morning comes and they hear the wailing of the Egyptians, they get up and they leave. And they take with them the treasures of Egypt with them. Remember, they've been given the articles of silver and gold from their neighbours. And they leave Egypt. And God redeems his people. He sets them free through this act of redemption as the Egyptians pay the price so that the Israelites can go free. This is what happens in the story. 
Now, you might say, what on earth has this got to do with us today? You might think, this is, what, has this got, what has this story got to do with us, like X amount of thousands of years later? You might look at it and go, this, is, this seems so alien, it's so random. God doesn't seem like this. You might say, well, actually, some of us might say, well, God doesn't seem this kind of God to me. In fact, actually, God's a God of love, yeah? In fact, I can quote you, God is love. It says it in John, 1 John 4, God is love. God is love. You might say that to me. How could God do this? How could God allow this to happen? Why would God kill all these people just to set some other people free? Why would he do that? God is love. John also writes in 1 John chapter 1 that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is a God of justice. God brings judgment on those who sin against him. And the unfortunate thing is for all of us is that we don't deserve to be like the Israelites. None of us do. None of us deserve to be like an Israelite. None of you do. You do not deserve to be an Israelite in a house painted with blood so that the angel of death can pass over you. You don't deserve to be there. You actually deserve to be an Egyptian. This is the reality of the, one that we, the, the life that we face before God. Because the thing is, if we were going to take verse 12 of chapter 12, that I read to you that, that, that God's judgment came upon all the gods of Egypt. The thing is, is that you and I, what we always want to do is we want to set ourselves up just to be like God and to rebel against him. So often you and I have tried to just do what we want and think we know better than God's ways. We dismiss the Bible out of hand and think, oh, it's not, it doesn't apply to us. We, we want to be God. We want to set ourselves up as gods. And in doing so, we deserve to be like the Egyptians. You all deserve to be there, outside of those houses painted with blood. I'm sorry, this is just the reality. It's not a very nice reality, but we all deserve to be there. And the thing is, for each of us, we all need a Passover. We all need a Passover, because we all deserve to be like the Egyptians, outside of those houses, but you and I, we need a Passover. The only way that we're going to be free is if we have a Passover. The only way that we can be free is if we, like the Israelites, are redeemed. We need a Passover. Now, there's a verse in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. And, and in this verse, in your English translation, you can test me on this if you want to. In most English translations of this verse, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul's writing about sin, and he makes this throwaway line. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Now, if you go back to the Greek for that text, Paul doesn't actually use the word lamb. He just says, for Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. Jesus is our Passover lamb. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But he's not just our Passover lamb. He is our Passover. We need a Passover, and God has given us one in Christ. We needed a Passover. We need to be able to be set free from our rebellion against God, just the way that the Egyptians rebelled against God and they had judgment coming upon them. We need to be set free from that judgment we need a Passover, and Jesus has been provided for us, our Passover. So Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is our Passover lamb, but he's also our Passover bread as well. And I'll talk about these two things very quickly before I make one more comment. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Okay, so just as the blood, this, this, this almost sinless kind of like goat or lamb was, was slaughtered, neat, like you could say, oh, this is outrageous, the poor lamb. Yeah? Just as this lamb, this innocent lamb was sacrificed, so too Jesus, as he, as he take, goes to the cross, is sacrificed for you and I, and his death becomes a substitutionary death for us. 
He becomes a substitute for you and I. His blood pouring out of the nails in his hands and out of his feet and out of his side as the, 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 um, the guards pierce his side to check whether he's dead. His blood is like the blood painted on the, the doorway of those houses that, that sets us free, that brings us redemption. Jesus is our Passover lamb, one who goes to the slaughter for us, that we might be free. But Jesus isn't just our Passover lamb. He's also our Passover bread as well. The thing about the bread, and Paul talks about this, in fact, actually the verse that I just before, um, the one I mentioned in in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing about a specific situation in in, in the church in Corinth. There's a guy there who's caught in sin. And Paul uses the analogy of, of, of bread made without yeast to talk about sin. And he says, just like yeast works through a whole batch of dough, so it is with sin in a church. If somebody sins and keeps on sinning, it's going to work for everybody. So he uses this analogy to talk about how yeast is a little bit like sin. And here we have the Israelites, thousands of years before, cooking bread made without yeast. It's pointing forward to one who is going to come, who is to be our bread, the sinless one. See, Jesus couldn't be the substitutionary sacrifice for us unless he was perfect and without sin. Yet, he does the complete will of God. In fact, actually, in Christ's life, he fulfills the law of God so that you and I don't have to fulfill the law of God. He's done it for us. He has become our Passover lamb, and he has become our Passover bread. But there's one more thing that Jesus does in the Passover. Jesus actually becomes an Egyptian. This is, like, really significant. Jesus becomes an Egyptian. Jesus finds himself, as the writer of the Hebrews says, he goes outside of the camp. And what Jesus does in his crucifixion is he actually becomes sin. He takes on sin. Paul writes this in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, the one who knew no sin became sin, so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Jesus becomes an Egyptian so that you and I can be adopted as the firstborn sons and daughters of God. It's the irony of the gospel that God sends his only son, his firstborn son. He comes and becomes an Egyptian, effectively. One who, he, all, this God's, all of the sin of the world is placed upon Jesus so that you and I can be redeemed and set free. He takes it on himself so that you and I can be set free. The punishment against our sin is laid on him. By his wounds we are healed, says Isaiah. So God, in his great amazing mercy and justice, makes a way for us to be passed over. And it's in Jesus that we're passed over. And it's because of Jesus. He is both the Passover lamb, the Passover bread, and also those outside the camp bearing the wrath of God's punishment against their sin. It's all in Jesus. It's all Jesus. So what should we do with this information? Well, there's two things we should do. And it is no accident, is it not, that the night before Jesus was crucified, there's a meal taking place. And oh my goodness, what a surprise, God, that the meal that they eat together, Jesus and his disciples, just so happens to be Passover. And Jesus takes the symbols that I've just spoken about. He takes this bread made without yeast I don't know whether there's something in this maybe for us when we, when we get back to doing communion with normal bread. Maybe we need to do it without yeast just to remember this. 
But he takes this bread made without yeast, he breaks it and he gives it to his disciples and he says, this is my body. And then he takes the cup of wine, which just so much looked like the, the wine, the blood that was painted on the doorways. And he says, this is my blood poured out for you. And, and, and he encourages them to take this meal. To, uh, so he encourages them to take this meal and he says, do this in remembrance of me. So the first thing that we need to do with this information about Passover is that when we come to Jesus, we need to remember what he's done for us. And we can do that on our own and we can do it collectively. And in a few minutes' time, we're just going to finish our time together by remembering what Jesus has done by taking communion together. We're called to remember. Remember that he's the one who has set us free from death. Remember that he's the one. Even though we deserve to be outside, he goes outside so that we can be safe. Remembering that. There's another thing as well that we should do. Because I did think about, you know, when you're coming up with how you do a talk, you kind of come up with lots of ways. There's actually three meals that are really significant. There's the first Passover, there's the last last supper, but there's also another supper that is to come. See, we're called to remember Christ's death in communion when we take communion, but also we're called to anticipate something. And the anticipation that we're called to to have is in, in a meal that is to come. And this meal that is to come is when Jesus Christ returns. Glorious, victorious, the one who is given all power and authority. The rider on the white horse. He comes to return. And when he comes to return, there is going to be a celebratory meal. And it's called the wedding feast of the Lamb. When he is married to his bride, the church. And we're called to anticipate that. We're called to live in readiness for it. We're called to live as if each day might be that day when Jesus comes again. So we're called to live in both remembrance and in hope. That Jesus has done it for us, that he's won it for us, that the victory is ours because of what he's done, and that one day we will celebrate that victory with him. So we're called to anticipate and we're called to remember. And so I feel like as we finish our time together this morning, I know there were some prophetic words that came earlier on. Maybe for you, you know that today you're just caught in some stuff, you're caught in sin, you just really identify with this. Oh, yeah, oh, my word, I've just, I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm behaving like I know I'm an Egyptian. I know I've never actually even asked Jesus into my life. Maybe that's you today, or maybe you know Jesus, but you've just been peeking out the windows again. Encouragement to you today is just to come back to Jesus and remember what he's done for you. It's only through Jesus that you're set free. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it yourself. We all deserve to be outside those walls of those houses. But it's only because of Jesus' blood that we are set free from it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just take communion together now. We're just going to remember for a moment. Remember Jesus together.